Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Today's founder is always looking for inspiration. Stephen Vlahos has built two companies from the ground up. His philosophy, dive in and learn along the way. Stephen struggled to find anything motivating about selling municipal bonds or underwriting loans for businesses, so he decided to take a leap and start his own business. What he discovered would lead him to his next venture and what really matters, good wine, food, and family. This is the story of Bellhops and Grazi Wine. So my name is Steven Vlahos, co-founder of Bellhops and co-founder of Grazi Wine. Grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, suburbs, Outback Steakhouse, Friday nights. That was the extent of the high-end restaurant. Yeah, I thought I grew up in the center of the universe, just one interstate exit in uh, Alabama off I-65, exit 252. Good childhood. Parents split up when I was young. I have an older brother. I was the first one in my immediate family and extended family, I think, to graduate college, which was cool. My dad was in the restaurant industry his whole life. His side is like Greek immigrants. And then my mom's side is Italian. Yeah, kind of blue collar-ish. So my dad had a restaurant chain, him and his dad, called Famous Ted Pizza. They got to about 15 stores in Birmingham and sold to Pizza Hut. And my granddad drove around in a black Cadillac DeVille with a cowboy hat. And his license plate said Famous Ted. And he was an uh, old school Vietnam vet guy, kind of that. So like the old school mentality of management, which is by fear. He would drive around, you know, in his Cadillac pull up, walk in with, with a cowboy hat, just kind of intimidate the store owners, I guess, to make sure they knew that they, they shouldn't steal from him. They kind of uh, were the first people to do pizza delivery in Birmingham. So they had like, uh, yeah, the last minute call, bring pizza to your house. Pizza Hut found out about them. They wanted to expand into that market. They bought like 15 stores, and then dad got into the steel business in Birmingham. We always were doing stuff, car washes, all sorts of, my brother is, you know, kind of an entrepreneur as well. He used to take gum to school and he used to buy like six packs of gum and sell them for like a buck each in elementary school. Went to school at Auburn, learned nothing. I guess my first entrepreneurial endeavor was in college. Every year, someone in like the fraternity that you're in usually decides to take on the risk of taking everyone's bets. This is like kind of pre-internet. Like I had a laptop, but it weighed like, you know, 15 pounds. So yeah, we ran a gambling business, took all the fraternity bets and kind of learned about accounting, accounts receivable, customer service, collecting cash, how to hedge. Uh, if you're getting too much weight on one side, having to find another bookie in town, you can call, never burn any bridges, make good relationships. Yeah, it was crazy. We made a decent amount of money, but it was super scary. And, but yeah, I had to do, I learned more in three months doing that than I did in four years in business school. I went to college because my girlfriend, now wife, 
her mother asked me where I was going to school and I didn't even think about it. They came from, you know, her dad is an engineer and, you know, awesome family or whatever, but like school was just kind of a part of the thing that you did where in my family, it was like, just get out of the house without, you know, doing anything stupid and then, you know, take care of yourself. But my now mother-in-law was like, where are you going to go to college? I was like, I have no idea. And she's like, well, you're about to be a senior in high school. And she, I was like, yeah, you just, you know, I'll just walk up to one after I graduate, right? And just give them the money and they'll let me in. And like, no, 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 you have to apply. So my grades were terrible because I had no focus on that. I looked at the, what it took from a GPA standpoint to get in. And I, I mean, I probably had like a 2-2 or something. Everything was boring. I wasn't interested in anything. So I got an Adderall, whatever, went to the doctor and told him I had trouble concentrating and it like bumped to like a 3-4 and I was able to get in. The only fun part about school was like the five minutes in between class. To me when you get to see your friends, but like nothing was interesting, was not engaged in any way in school. I went to Auburn University because my, you know, now wife, she was a year younger, but she was going to go there. So I was like, I'll just go there, but didn't put any thought into why or what they focus on or anything like that. It was like an hour and a half from my house. Again, same thing as high school, like didn't care about anything, wasn't engaged. You know, you go sit in a room of 500 people and hear somebody at the bottom talk about something and you're supposed to remember it, I guess, and show up. Yeah, there was no engaging conversation, no small classes, just like a big state school. Nothing was interesting, but I did the same thing. I realized you had to specialize like your junior year and I'd stopped taking Adderall. Just pass was the thing. And then to get into business school, you had to have like a 3.0 or something in your under. So I started taking it again and like bumped it to a 3.4. <laughs> the whole bookie thing came about, I had a friend super into gambling. I wasn't really who uh, pitched me on doing it with him. And then how those things go, I ended up doing all the work and he spent all of his money that we earned on gambling with another bookie because he apparently had a gambling problem. I think he's fine now. But yeah, and I was super skeptical of it. I didn't have, actually, I needed like six grand to back it. And my dad told me to get a student loan because it was so cheap. It was like a, like five grand or something like that. And I was like, I, I worked at the country club and like cooked burgers at the pool. So I didn't really need the money. He was paying for my school, but I had to pay for everything else. Talked to some other bookies in town or people that had done it before and like, yeah, you're going to get your butt whooped like the first few weeks of the season. Vegas makes the lines easy. So people get addicted. So they gamble the rest of the year. So you say you're going to get hammered the first four weeks. So you need some cash to back it up. My buddy had like $600. I had like five grand, but it was student loans. I was supposed to like, I was, it wasn't for tuition, but it was like literally from FASFA or I don't know, whoever the, the people are. I was like, well, I got this five grand in my account. I don't really have anything to do with it. Why don't we just use that? In the first four weeks of the year, we lost like $4,900. <laughs> we just kept getting hammered every weekend. And we were taking like $50, $100 bets or whatever. If you're a bookie and you don't have the money, you get beat up, right? Like if somebody wins 600 bucks from you and you say, well, I don't have it, then they just, you know. So luckily that was the last week we lost. After that, I think we won like net like $16,000 over the course of eight weeks or whatever, but it was super scary. But again, it was so much fun. And I, it was the first thing that I ever did that was fun. That was scary. And it had like downside and upside. And we had to do the books every week and we had to take phone calls and we didn't want to do anything online because we we're like paranoid. We had like a go phone from Walmart. We had a trapper keeper with all of our clients numbers and we kept their ledger and we would tally up their bets throughout the week and then like make a, sh a sheet. And we had a drop off date, had to deal with like cash flow and accounting and customer service and like meeting people. So like my accounting classes actually started making sense to me that I was taking. It's like, oh, this is what 
accounts receivable is. This is what a cash flow statement is to where if I'm just learning, you know, unilaterally in a classroom, I have nothing to compare it to. I have no skin in the game. It's just German to me. I mean, I have, it, it doesn't mean anything, but I started doing better in school when I was a bookie because my business classes made sense. Like start a lemonade stand. You know what I mean? Like just pay 600 bucks for the thing. You have to buy ingredients. Like you have to, you know what your net profit is, gross profit. You have to figure out how to acquire customers. You have to get, so you learn about location, like these little tiny things. And then school kind of makes sense. It was an awesome learning experience probably like ignited like my appetite for risk, to be honest with you, because I just always assumed that graduate, get a business degree and like go sit in a cubicle because I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer. And the town I grew up in, those were like the six jobs you got. There's like five archetypes for like a male professional and entrepreneurship wasn't even really a thing. So yeah, I just assumed that was the path was just a boring business job. Graduated college, went to Europe, you know, did like the stereotypical, like me and two of my buddies. I think we went for like a month on like 3,500 bucks. Had a blast, came home January, 2009, the peak of the recession. And I got a job offer to do loan processing for Wells Fargo. Uh, and it was literally taking paper and putting it into a computer, like just typing in a cubicle. And I think the offer was like $21,000 a year or something. They were just hiring anybody. I had started like reading some books. That buddy that did accounting for us, one of the smartest guys I know, but he like told me to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think I started reading like some of these books that you can't, once you read two or three of them, you're kind of done with the whole category, but it is like a interesting mindset to spin you in, like think and grow rich. Some of it might be mysticism, but I got back and I was living with my dad and my girlfriend at the time, still in school. I have no debt. I have, you know, I'm not, why would I take a job that like, I'm going to learn nothing from literally. So I started reading like the business section of the local news every day or whatever. I had an idea when I was in Europe, I loved how when you take your beer bottles back to the grocery store and you get like a credit. And I was like, well, that's super cool. So my idea was I was going to do that in Birmingham, like start a local brewery and we have like an old truck and we drive around like a milkman and like bring your beer and deliver it like these cool. This is like the beginning of the microbrewery or whatever, especially there was probably some in Brooklyn, but in Birmingham, there was none. You couldn't even have high graph beer in Alabama at that time. But a guy started a company called Good People Brewing Company in like the basement of a steakhouse. It's a huge business now. I mean, the guy has been extremely successful, distributed all throughout the Southeast. They have a massive brewery in Birmingham. But I emailed him and said, I'll work for free, but I, I think your business is interesting and I want to help you. I did. He said he was a financial advisor in Nashville. He wanted to start a brewery, quit his job. He had four kids and a wife, moved to Birmingham. And this guy bought some old brew pubs, bankrupt equipment. He said, I want to be Alabama's brewery. And uh, it was just me and him in the basement of this restaurant for like six months. I worked for free for him. We did everything from, I would like go get the grain off the back of the truck and like take it down the stairs, pour it in the vats, boil it, pull it out, take it out to the dumpster. We'd do sales, go work music festivals, that type of stuff. And he was one of the most impressive people I've, I've ever been around. And that's why he's so successful. But like he did accounting, brewing, like he was super opinionated, literally didn't pay himself for like two years convinced his family to move to Birmingham. It got to the point where I was, he still didn't have enough money to pay me because they didn't even, probably didn't even break even or whatever at that point. But uh, I was like, I need to get a job it, with it, that, that pays me, my dad's gonna kill me. I moved to Memphis, Tennessee to do an internship at a municipal bond firm. 
again, this is like Feb 2009, the Dow Jones to 6,800 points. Like nobody, like Home Depot might be hiring, maybe. I made sure that I was like first one in, last one out in the internship class. They're going to keep like two people. They were kind of in college and I was out of college. I was like, I was pretty desperate to like get the, the job offer. So I think I did a good job of impressing the team or whatever over the summer. And then they kept two of us and we started studying for the series seven and had to get like my stockbroker license or whatever that, and then cold call. So I did 600 cold calls a week for a year. You know, what I was having to do was, I mean, it wasn't like Wolf of Wall Street or whatever, but like they didn't give us any leads. I was like Googling small businesses in Columbus, Mississippi. And I was like calling guys to own car dealerships. I started just finding out who the richest people in the state were. And they also had this thing where you're supposed to like specialize in this, like only get licensed in Mississippi, like pick a state and call into it. They didn't care how many states you got licensed in. It only cost like 200 bucks for them. So I just emailed the girl in HR and I was like, hey, I want to get licensed in every state in the country. And she was like, you sure? I was like, yeah. I mean, it doesn't cost me anything. And that means I can sell to anybody. So then I just pulled like the biggest net worth people. I got the CEO of Exxon Mobil's fax number. I sent him a fax like every day for six weeks or whatever. He never called me back. But uh, I did talk to the, the uh, Governor Haslam in Tennessee. I kept calling his office. He's like a billionaire. He owns the Cleveland Browns. And he just called me back too because he knew I lived in Tennessee and he wanted me to vote for him. <laughs> but I mean, I was calling if you own an NFL team, cause in the bond business, you sell somebody $30 million worth of bonds. Like you make like 180 grand. I knew I wasn't going to be there for forever. The most important thing about like the cold calling stuff is like getting told no. I mean, I got told if I did 600 a week, I'm not that good at math, but I got told no, like 65,000 times in a year. I sold like two big blocks of bonds and one was to a guy with Alzheimer's. And he didn't know that he bought him. So he never sent the check in. And I didn't know he had Alzheimer's. He was like this old retired doctor in Mississippi. And so that was my one sale. They come out and cut your ties. Like you just made 20 grand or whatever. And then like two weeks later, they checked out and show up, checked out and show up, checked out and show up. I'm just like, shit, I keep calling him. He's like, hello? I was like, hey, you know, Mr. Williams, this Steve Blouse asking about the, you know, that block of municipal bonds. He's like, huh? I was like, oh shit. And then I had to go like tell my boss that, I didn't actually have my sale and y'all, they cut like your tie off and they like bought, put it in a frame, like in the, in the hallway. So I had to like take it down. I think I made like two sales. So anyway, I decided my wife was graduating college then. And I was like, she doesn't want to move to Memphis and I don't want to be here, move back to Birmingham. And I kind of took the same approach where I wanted to learn about like finance and businesses and successful businesses. And I wanted someone to pay me to do it. So I took a commercial lending job for a large corporate in Birmingham at Regions Bank. And they paid like $26,000 a year. But again, I just got to go through the books of everybody's business and underwrite loans for them. So I got like, they taught me how to learn read income statements, balance sheets, cash flow statements, all that stuff. And while I was doing that is when I kind of had my first epiphany to start a company because this road that I'm on is never gonna lead to like, even the lifestyle that I had growing up, which wasn't like super lavish or whatever. Me and a few friends got together and we said, we have to start something because if not, we're going to be, you know, 40 years old and working at this bank with like a hunchback. 
So we put like all of our money together and we said we had this idea of when we were in college, there's a certain time of year where there's an extremely high value for labor because like people from all around the country at Auburn, they move apartments and dorms and all that. And we'd get paid like 350 bucks to like move a couch upstairs. And we just said, let's just start a moving business. We'll package it and sell it as like dorm move-in helpers or like move big move-in day. And we launched it and marketed in like the freshman orientation booklet. And we did like $30,000 in revenue in like four days, but only one time a year, right? So it just happens like this one week where everybody moves in. And I was like, I was sitting in my cubicle and I was like, we just made 30 grand. I mean, we didn't make 30 grand, but top line revenue. And I'll make $22,000 this year at this bank personally for one year. And I, we just did that. And so I said, let's take it to 10 schools and we'll do $300,000 a year. I'll quit and uh, convince my wife to move back in with my dad, which I'm sure he was super pumped about. I'd just gotten like health insurance and I was married. Yeah, I was married. We, we had gotten married. I mean, she just was, I don't know why, but super supportive. And we moved back in with my dad and I quit my job, launched the business. We took it to like eight schools and grew it to about, I think we did like 120 grand the next year, something like that in revenue. And then picked up some investors and uh, it was the boom of the smartphone. I mean, it's like 2013, like the first year we did it, like 27% of our workforce had smartphones. And, you know, two or three years in, it was like 80%. And we changed the business model to be distributed workforce, labor, moving help and we took it to a bunch of cities around the country and uh, raised a bunch of money they'll do you know millions and millions of dollars in revenue this year super talented management team building some really cool technology the name of the company is bellhops and it's weird that that's the origin story of it or whatever but yeah they do a great job and we've got like a super impressive harvard mba a bunch of ex-uber employees work there and they've kind of taken it to the next level beyond my capacity. I mean, our initial thought, I mean, I put 100% of my net worth into it at the time, which I think was like $600. The reason we did labor only, there's no upfront capital cost, right? So, I mean, we didn't have any money and we did, I didn't even know what debt or equity was in terms of like financing and raising. And, you know, in the, the banking side that I was in before, it's traditional financing. It's like Coca-Cola distributor needs a line of credit. You know, all this alternative financing type startup stuff was not even in our realm. So we just kind of put all the money we had together and asked friends and family to work for free. And then we launched a service-based business because you can't get a loan. But the, you know, we saw a small opening in a market that was underserved. Thinking back on it, not knowing anything about startups, we just like did minimum viable product, but we didn't know what that meant, right? We launched as little as possible because that's all we could afford. And we got traction with it and then learned how to expand around it, you know, have layered on services. And now the business, I believe a large percentage of it is like transportation. The inflection point of the business, what the reason I quit my job at the bank was I was looking, I had like a Samsung Raspberry and one of those funky phones back then. And my email was connected. We had like the dorm movers at gmail.com, I think is what it was. And I was CC'd on customer service. And we had done that initial weekend and some lady from like Charlotte wrote like a, you know, 150 word essay about her husband having back surgery and her youngest daughter was going to college. She's going to be an empty nester and she had to drive down like seven hours by herself 
and was crying the whole time because her, her baby was leaving. When she got there, there was like these two charming, thoughtful Southern gentlemen waiting for her. And, you know, we did like the above and beyond customer service where, you know, sweep the room without them asking you to do it. Right. We made the YouTube videos of like the culture that we wanted, which was, you know, these people are super emotional. They're dropping their kids off. Then they have to leave and they're going to like cry the whole way back. Like this is before FaceTime and, and social media and all this stuff. We made sure to make an emotional impression on these people at a very emotional time. And, you know, the money was nothing to them. You know, they're sending their kids to a state school and living in a nice apartment. Like I think we charged a hundred bucks and the kids got tips too. But I got an email from a lady who had a super emotional experience and like she remembered the guy's names and was so thankful for them and like hugged them and bought them pizza. She wrote us this like super emotional email and I like quit my job the next day. Or I decided I was going to quit my job the next day. We created something that someone likes and that was addicting. I, I think the biggest issue with starting a business is the psychosis of why did I just leave something consistent and take on all this risk of the unknown and then having just one person that believes in you and is like, you're going to do great. It's like, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy what that will do for you. And again, if you make a bunch of bad decisions over and over there, that person's not going to keep saying that. My wife was, yeah, we'd gotten married. We had a house. I had a job. She had a job. And I was like, I want to start a dorm moving company. We're going to move back in with my dad. And she said, okay. Throughout everything, I mean, she's just been I mean, unbelievable. Positive and trust me. And will also call me on BS, which is nice. If she thinks I'm screwing up or not focused or whatever, she'll kind of keep me in check. You're initially resistant to any sort of feedback. We were fortunate that Uber was blowing up. We got a decent amount of capital thrown towards us because everyone was looking for the next Uber. So we had money. The hardest thing is when you take that route and if the growth shudders a little bit, then you can go into panic mode, right? And you can start making irrational decisions or you can adapt or refocus. But I, I think the hardest times were meeting expectations, not even were they external from investors or whatever, but we were super excited, right? So we wanted the thing to grow super fast. And when that slows down, having a clear head and trying to understand why, and then can you actually change it is the scariest things. But the business has adapted in an incredible way and has continued to blossom and become more robust in its offerings and much more scalable. A lot of it was through technology. We uh, throwing the transportation piece in really helped us from a growth standpoint. We were doing $150 moves and now we're doing $3,000 moves because there's an element of the product offering that we had to tweak some things and try different offerings. But yeah, the I think the hardest thing in a startup is expectations and then meeting expectations, you know, based off of internal morale and, you know, external pressures of go big or go home. We had taken on a good amount of capital. The business was growing and scaling. And I started to feel like I was way less excited about writing these long form updates for the board. I was building less and communicating more, which is key for an executive, right? is to be able to be a good communicator and to set expectations. And I either lacked competency or passion in that realm at that stage. And I was more excited about being in the business and working with people and 
mentoring and trying new fun stuff, there became a gap in the skill set where there was, I could sense frustration that I wasn't great at articulating in a long form manner in like these big presentations, board meetings. And not only was I not great at it, but I didn't want to do it. I mean, there was times where it was more stressful than others, but I was excited about everything that we were doing. And when it became like, holy crap, I got to stay up here from six to 11 tonight and write this investor update. It was the only time I would just got kind of got dark in my head. I was like, I, I, I just don't like this. Had the opportunity to kind of do a search for, to see if somebody, if a very talented person was interested in the gig. I think the board was a little frustrated with my tinkering and being, you know, too involved in the business and not being a good executive, to be honest with you. We got lucky that this super talented guy out of Atlanta that was like a Harvard MBA and who'd done a bunch of cool stuff at Uber was interested in the position. And we all went out to dinner with our wives and talked to him and he took over kind of the beginning of 2018 and he's still there now and doing a fantastic job. I think initially it hurt my ego because, you know, everybody has egos, but like the moment it was over, I felt this massive sense of relief. Not only that I didn't have to do that stuff that I didn't want to do anymore, but also that, you know, I have a ton of equity in this business that somebody that honestly is more capable than me is going to take it. But once I did it and then sat through a few of his board meetings, I was like, okay, they don't need me anymore. He was so good at articulating the vision, the plan, laying it out and doing the MBA speak, which I did not know how to do and speak in that language. So they're doing awesome. I was super eager to do something else just because I'm kind of like a, I think I've gotten better at it, but I, I had a tendency to be chasing shiny objects. I would like new ideas, new this, new that, new this. And I was super anxious to like get going. I had two ideas in my head, a wine business and something in like the, the music industry. But I was talking to my brother who is a super successful custom home builder in Florida. And it has like two kids in the house. And I said, you know, I'm about to dive into this. And he's like, dude, take a month off. He's like, just clear your head. So me and my dad went to Greece and Italy for like almost two weeks. And it was unbelievable and so necessary. Me and my dad went to like 13 cities in like 14 days and just had a blast. It solidified the idea for my next company, which I got started on like right when I got back. My kind of escape from that crazy startup life was wine. <laughs> so... Uh, I, like my escapism was I got really into movies and wine and that was really the only way I could relax like go to sleep but get home and looking at emails and as soon as I would mute my phone and open a bottle of wine and turn on a movie I kind of fell in love with both at the same time but the more I started talking to people in the industry and I have some buddies that have a whiskey company and started talking to a guy who has his own winery and I just got you know very interested in the whole business of it and the history of it and where it is now and the more I looked at it the more I felt like as a consumer I didn't have a product for myself as a wine person I remembered our someone who loved wine but often was discouraged by my experience in wine shops and you know spending 25 bucks on a bottle and not liking it and then spending eight bucks on a bottle of Chianti or something and think it was fantastic or getting up sold at dinner on a $90 bottle of wine and not liking it. But yeah, I just kind of dove in and the more I learned, the more I realized there is really, really fantastic wine out there and it's all about positioning, marketing, packaging, and branding. 
And what I wanted to do was create a brand of wine, a respectable, delicious brand of wine that is not going to be met with. I feel like the industry is kind of binary where you have your wine snobbish type folks and then you have your 399 bottle like you either pick a direction you say i just drink this stuff or i become like this connoisseur culture is not like that in europe they don't drink bad wine but they also don't pay a lot of money for wine because it's ubiquitous and asking someone if the wine is good it's like you know asking a guy who owns a pizza shop if his pizza's good they take a lot of pride in it and they don't sell it for an arm and a leg but it's fantastic we designed a single serve 375 milliliter red blend and sold it into bars and restaurants in Austin, Texas. I wanted to just kind of move away from where I'd lived. Me and my wife moved down there. I just kind of bootstrapped it and distributed it myself, did sales, deliveries, and we were able to, over the course of about a year, get into about 150 bars and restaurants, picked up a local distributor. And, you know, we had things we had to learn and mistakes that we made and all that stuff. So the company is called Grazi which is inspired by that Mediterranean trip where you know people have that amazing relationship with wine that I want to emulate here in the US. But you know, we decided that it, it wasn't about where the wine was from, it was about how it tasted and the flavor profile. And it should be not too sweet, not too dry, kind of a crowd pleaser. A bottle of wine that you can whip out at a party if someone runs out and it's not gonna upset or you know, it's not your overpowering Napa cab, but it's also not like this sweet headache juice. We just tasted wine from all over the place and just picked what we liked. And we initially landed on Lodi, California, and we got a blend from Lodi and we were selling it into kind of your dive bar and restaurants in Austin, Texas, taco places, burger places, Franklin barbecue, the famous uh, James Beard place there. The first two sales pitches I did, they said yes. And I was like, I kept talking, which is the worst thing to do, right? When they're in, but we had two like pitches lined up and they're like, yeah, we love it. Love the swag. Love the wine. Sounds great. We'll take a few cases. And I wouldn't shut up. They all didn't go that way. But the first two did, which is also, you know, a great, our first account ended up being like the best account we ever had in Austin. Then you run into who's your distributor, just things I didn't know. And that's why I kind of just like wanted to walk into it like a child and just kind of get beat up and, and learn. The limitations were, you know, we won't buy from anybody that's a distributor or we're loyal to these people. Just learned a lot. Picked up a distributor. I was about to do another big production run and COVID hit. Within like four weeks of COVID hitting, like 60% of our accounts closed. They canceled ACL, they canceled South by Southwest, no more tastings in the grocery stores. And I was about to run out of wine and I was, was sitting there with my now business partner. We said, we're so early that we can still change. If we're three or four years in, it's just harder, for like sunk cost fallacy or whatever. It's like harder to pivot mentally because of everything you've put into it. But we said, I don't think anything's gonna be the same for a long time. And if we were to start over, what would we do <laughs> from everything we've learned? And we sat at the, our little office we had on the east side in Austin and drank for about seven and a half hours and listened to jazz music and ate bread and cheese and drank wine and kind of re-envisioned the whole business for a new world of COVID. So this is 2020. We said if we could start over, we would sell directly to customers. We would bypass distributors and retailers and just focus on the at-home experience and we would change the packaging to be more optimized for shipments we decided to go with a three liter box of wine like you would see a boda box or franzia in a grocery store 
And we were scared that people were going to be like associating box wine with, you know, headache juice, super sugary stuff. But we said, this is a product that we would want is a nice wine that comes straight to our house in a three liter box. And we think we can break through that barrier of the premiumization of box wine. It took us six or seven months to do the packaging and redesign. And the, a cool thing was we now had double the budget on the wine itself because we weren't selling to a distributor and a retailer. So we could literally pay twice as much and still sell it at a decent margin. So we got to go on a new journey with where we we're going to buy wine from. And we got to go a lot higher end and landed on Columbia Valley, Washington, which to me is a super value oriented, high end, great juice. Yeah. Redesigned the package and said, we're only going to sell to people directly. And we launched this direct to consumer model last spring and it is kind of killing it, which is super cool. We had a little bit of a slow start just to kind of learn how to message in Facebook and Instagram and fix the site and design and all that jazz. We're keeping the product line super simple. Three liter boxes ship straight to your house. If we bottled and retailed our wine, it would cost 20 bucks a bottle. And we sell the box for $40, which is four bottles of wine. We don't pitch it as a value brand, but it's $80 worth of wine for 40 bucks and it comes to your house. So that's where we are. You know, what's awesome about direct consumer is they buy from you. Like we sold a bunch of wine in Austin in retail. I had no clue who bought it. I mean, I could go talk to bartenders and stuff, but I really didn't know who was purchasing. Some people would follow us on Instagram. You just tell by the data, how do they reorder? And like close to 65% of our revenue now is repurchase and subscription. So the idea for the box was we want people to think about wine like you think about olive oil, salt, pepper, butter. It should be high quality wine should be an ingredient in your house, almost like that you should keep in the pantry, not a cellar beneath the mansion. But the most promising thing and why we continue to invest in it and hire people and grow the business we're launching a rosé next month is people love it. The repurchase rate and the, you know, four and five star reviews that we get, you know, and if people don't like it, it's because they, our wine's not for everybody. They might want something a little bit more full bodied or they might want something a little sweeter. So our, our wine is not too sweet, not too dry, balanced, and almost has no sugar in it, which is a big thing for us as well. Yeah. The people that love it, love it. They keep us afloat and more and more subscribers keep adding on every month. And it seems to be, you know, still early, but the feedback is awesome. The support is there. It's fantastic. I learned a lot from our first business. First business is extremely complicated. So you've got it's a two-sided marketplace. It's doable, but requires a lot of technology, a lot of moving parts. You can get a call from a customer in Seattle that their cat got out during the move and they have to be at the airport the next morning by 7 a.m. And you have might have to stay on the phone till 3 a.m. that night because of the details of moving are just so much more complex. But our business is intentionally simplified. We wanted to simplify wine. To me, it's a business that we can continue to grow with scale, hire good people, and it's much more manageable from a, I'm not getting 16 phone calls on a Saturday morning. Like I was in the early days of bellhops about people not showing up or someone's dresser being broken or ripping the awning off of a Burger King with a U-Haul truck, which has happened. I'd very much get the support, but I intentionally designed it to be a more manageable business so I can, you know, have nights and weekends and afternoons with, with the fam, which is great. We delayed our launch 
for the wine about four months because we couldn't find something that we loved. And we were going all up and down California and not that the, the wine was bad. It just wasn't really what we were looking for and what we were trying to do. We we're on some website. I did not know much about Columbia Valley, but we got sent some samples and that kind of piqued our interest in the whole area and then made some connections and flew out there and tasted a bunch of stuff and met a bunch of awesome people and got to see some cool vineyards and, you know, picked our partner. And now we're at the scale where we were working with them before, you know, super early, you kind of buy what they have. Um, they can blend it and, and tweak stuff, but now we're to the scale and to the volume. And frankly, you know, before we were just some nobody kids from Texas calling about buying some wine where now we're developing kind of longer term relationships and having to plan crops for next year and you know how often we're going to be doing production runs it's been a super fun experience and Oregon Washington are kind of blowing up in terms of popularity and I think it's just the approachability of the wine and it doesn't yet have that a lot of times the wine from Napa which is great cost 150 bucks a bottle because a bunch of tech billionaires bought all the wine wineries drove the price up and it's just that the land's expensive and it might not necessarily be because the wine's 15 times better. It's just that it's got that appeal like the Louis Vuitton purse, but it's still just a leather bag. We want to continue to grab customers from the retail space that are paying 20 bucks a bottle at a large chain grocery store and just have it sent to them. The business was kind of built as like a wine hack for direct to consumer relationships. And we want to own the in-home experience and we don't want to mess with restaurants or grocery stores or anything like that. You know, we just want to continue to grab more market share in the US. We can sell to 90% of the US population. The long-term vision for the business is to be more of a Mediterranean pantry subscription box. So we're going to throw in some dry pasta. Eventually we're going to do a olive oil next year and, you know, really just be that fun box that shows up once a month with, or in, a lot of people's cases every other week for the wine, depending on how much they drink. Yeah, and just kind of be a, a lifestyle, Mediterranean-inspired, at-home subscription. Work is fun, you know, and the unknown is fun, and I really love working with people, and, you know, I've got a business partner who is unbelievable, and we both want to build stuff, and seeing things grow and creating it out of midair, it's kind of addicting, and I don't know if I would even if we were fortunate enough to sell it at some point or whatever, I mean, I'd probably just do something else because what else are you gonna do? Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Mesh Lakani. Thank you to Stephen Vlahos for sharing your story with us. You can learn more about Bellhops by visiting getbellhops.com. Or if you want to learn about Grazi wine, visit Grazi.com. That's G-R-A-T-S-I.com. The Founder Stories team includes Olivia Briley, Stephanie Horton, Ramsey Yunt, Xander Adams, and Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We, of course, appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you want, leave us a review. It goes a long way. Until next time.